this sermon series called The End of Me, and I know that that looks a little bit of me. The End of Me and Marriage. Yes, they go together. I'm going to talk about that today. Um, some of you guys, you thought that you wasn't going to be the end of you until you got married, and you found out it is. Um, and so... I thought that this is this is a great in this whole thing this is a great topic to talk about. Um, I want to spend uh, this week and next week on it. And again, don't get like, oh well, I'm not married or whatever, and you just kind of check out. This is for if you're married, if you're going to get married, if you're thinking about getting married, if you like marriage, if you know someone that's married. Okay, this is for you. Okay. Um, so even if you know somebody that's married, and you, this is great stuff, you can write and give them advice from the Bible um, and if, they're, if, they're, if they're walking through some tough times. Because they, they love marriage advice from some of the people that aren't married. It's like people giving you parenting advice that have no children. Right? Anybody in there? Let me tell you what to do. Yeah, not listen to you because you don't have kids, right? Um, that sounds better at all. I'm sorry. No, it's not. But we have been in this series, and, and, and basically the premise of the series, if you have not been with us, is that when we come to the end of ourselves, we find the life we were meant to live in Christ. That when Jesus came, when he came to the earth and he was ushering this kingdom, remember he was, he was born in humility, and, and the way he came, the King of Kings leaves heaven and he's born in humility, and we celebrate Christmas when he's born in a stable, but he grows up, and when he begins his earthly ministry, Jesus begins to teach very profound things. We read about it in the Gospels, and he teaches things and, uh, that are, are, again, pointing to the reality of who he is and the reality of his kingdom. And some of the things that he said are paradoxical in nature. What I mean by that, it sounds a little absurd, but when you dig deeper, there is real life meaning with it. You know, he, you know, he would say you know, things like that in the Bible, that if you want to be strong, you must be weak. If you want to be rich, you are poor, for my sake. Um, and, and he would teach these things about how to understand and how to perceive his kingdom. He was bringing in a kingdom that would be different than the world. It would be counterculture. It would be counterintuitive. But it would make a lot of sense because it, it, it's spiritual. His kingdom is spiritual. That's why that whole idea of you know, the disciples, they knew he was the king. Are you, you know, are, are you, is this the time you're going to take over? And, and he was going to the cross. And that didn't really make a lot of sense to them. As, why, as a king, why would you just going to take over? And he said, I'm taking over, but it's in a different way. I'm going to, I'm, my mission is to defeat sin, death, hell, the grave, and to give you spiritual life that when this flesh and blood and body stops living, that there is a reality of eternity. Now there is purpose in this life that we live now. But he said, I didn't create you just for this life, but there is an eternal purpose for you as well. And so he's bringing in this counter into a countercultural idea called the kingdom of God. To be whole, you must be broken again. And, um, and then we talked about last couple weeks um, what Paul says that to continue to live, you must be crucified with Christ. And that's Paul said in Galatians 2.20. It says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Not I, but Christ lives in me. But then, he, then he has this pause, and then he says, this life that I live in the body. In other words, he says, I'm crucified with Christ, but it's not like now I'm banished and I'm immediately in heaven because I've accepted Christ in my favor. Now this life I live in the body, I live, again, to fulfill God's purposes 
And then he says this, I live it by faith in Christ who loved me and gave himself up to me. And this, and, and this is kind of called, this is why I do what I do. And Jesus came and loved me and he gave himself up to me. And so now his life, and I want his life to be lived in and through me all my days. Carrying into sanctification earlier, that idea of sanctification, that big word, just simply means that we're becoming more and more like Jesus. And Paul talked about in Romans 7, the last week we spent a little time in Romans 8, we talked about this battle. We're in a battle, right? Paul says, I'm in a, I'm in a battle. My, my, my flesh and my spirit are at odds with one another. You know, you know when your flesh stops battling? You know when that happens? When you die, physically. But until we die, there, there's that temptation and those battles that we fight. And Paul talks about in Romans 7, he says, my, my, my flesh and my spirit are at odds with one another. And he goes, who can save me from this life? Thanks be to God, it is Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so he, this fight, this wrestle, there's the reality that it's not an unwinnable battle as we're walking to Christ and we're becoming more and more like Jesus. That should be the goal, that we're becoming more and more like him. Key verse, we're going to get in marriage in a moment, but he said to them, all who ever wants to be my disciple, we look at this passage again, I encourage you to get this in your heart and your spirit. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take the cross, and follow me. That's the conditions that Jesus said. Want to be a follower? What it means to be a Christian? It's more than just saying, I am a Christian, or a lip service. He's saying, Do you deny yourself, take the cross, and follow him as that he is the leader? Whoever wants to save the life is that paradoxical thing. So whoever wants to save the life will lose it. Whoever loses the life for me will find it or save it. And so that's that key passage. And today's sermon, marriage and the end of me. Marriage and the end of me. Um, most people go into marriage, and if you're like me, I did this too. You know, it, it's, you go in with these kind of rose-colored stains and you know, glasses that you're trying to see things well. Love will see us through. We're never going to fight. We're never going to have issues or problems. And you may not say it, but sometimes you think it. You know, love is all we need, the Beatles saying. Um, and it's just, it doesn't take long where those myths of marriage begin to unravel, right? And you see that. As much as we get romanticized about that you complete me, better get that out of your mind. If you're looking for a person to complete you, you have already, you're already at a disadvantage. Because the idea of the way God set it up is that we would be complete in Christ and that we would love, they have the capacity to love one another. You know, that we'll get together and we'll be whole. We'll get together and all the things, all the problems will go away. <laughs> I, I laugh. 26 years of marriage. You, we just celebrated 26 years of marriage in May. Thank God. So, yeah. Victoria, Victoria. It's good, but it's hard. It's hard. And this idea that, you know, we're going to come together and this, we're going to come together and all of our problems are going to go, no, you just double the problems. Two times. It's, 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 it's magnified. And God in His manifold wisdom, I mean, it, 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 it amazes me that He set it up the way He did, right? 
He set it all up. He set everything up. When you see the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of Paul, you know, even the, the love chapter, right? First Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, love is gentle, love is this, and it's not this, it's not boastful, it's not proud, it doesn't think of itself. And he's keeping it on, right? And he's just like laying one heavy boulder after the next, right? Because we, we love to quote it and we love to say it, but then we're like, now I've got to live that out. How do I live that out? That seems overwhelming. And I think the point is between what, what, what Jesus says, what Paul says, it is meant to overwhelm you. And you hear me say that a lot, but it's very true. It's meant to overwhelm you. To say, I can only do it with Christ. I, I have to be crucified with Christ. He has to live in me. He has to live through me to have the capacity to love that way. And I, I'm more and more, you know, it, it's, it's going in when young people are going into marriage. We need to prepare them more to die to themselves. Again, I said this one, one pastor I know that he, he pastors a large church and he does the female company. It's a lot of people go to a class and so he's got a bunch. His first session is prepare to die. Can you imagine going into the premarital council and love, you know? She said, yeah, and we sit down and say, prepare to die. Welcome to prepare to die. You know, and all of it, give you pause, but it's very true. It's very true. And so, again, the premise of today's message is that coming to the end of myself in Christ is the key to a great marriage. Godly marriage versus the cultural standard of marriage is a paradox. We've been talking about paradoxes, right? Culture tells us that marriage is 50-50. We hear that. It's contract-based. It's based on lots of feelings and emotions. It's, a lot of times it's me-centered. How my needs are being met or not being met is the focus. Again, you complete me until you don't complete me. Right? And then I'm out. You used to complete me. You don't complete me anymore. The focus is on my happiness. How my spouse can provide my happiness to me. This kind of marital love is, is, is on the surface. Again, feelings driven. It's emotionally based. It's like people, you know, I, have, I don't have feelings for you anymore. I've fallen out of love with you. And you hear those things, right? It's like, I don't have feelings. I'm like, okay. So, there's days you don't have feelings for the other person. It's hard. You go through times and seasons. If you think about the vows that you take, for better or for worse, right? What is that, for better or for worse? What is that saying? Uh, when the feelings are there or not there. But if it's solely on the foundation of feeling, then we use that justification as I don't have feelings for you anymore. And that is the way culture defines it. Then it's contract driven, 50 50, and if those feelings are not there, you are, you're out. You didn't uphold, I'm out of my end of the bargain, you're out of the end, you're into the bargain. Godly marriage. And godly marital love is defined completely different. 
the word love, agape, when we hear that word, um, you know, there's many different types of words for love in the Bible. Today we're going to begin, begin with one, and next week we're going to end with the last one. I'm very excited about a little teaser. You don't want to miss it. If you miss it, um, I don't know what you're going to do. So. Um, but we hear the word agape, and again, there's, in the English language, the word love is, you know, gets, it, 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 it's, it's terribly overused or misused. Now that we don't have those feelings of love and of or, or you know, that we don't, there's deep seated love in us, it's just that we throw love around as one word, you know, I, and, and, I, and I've used this before, but it's like, I, I love you, and then you can, in the same sense, that I love pizza. Well, obviously, I don't love you like I love pizza, right? Or you're hoping I don't. But we just throw that word around. And I love how the Bible unpacks, and it really, it really unpacks the word love a lot. And, and the foundational word, agape, agape love, in the Greek, that word means self-sacrificial love. That is the predominant usage of love in the Bible. I mean, the predominant usage. All of 1 Corinthians 13 is agape love. Now, there's other... Mentions of different types of love. There's nurturing love. There's the love like uh, like sexual love, which is important parts of marriage and relationships. But this word agape is found as self-sacrificial love. When when it says that Jesus died and He loved us, He loved us when He gave up into the self-sacrificial. That my truth is that I lay my life down for you. That's what Jesus. That's gospel. That He loves us. That He would lay His life down. Agape means self. Sacrificial love. Ephesians 5.5, we find it says, it, it's uh, husbands love your wives. It's a marriage passage. Husbands agape, self sacrificially love your wife like Christ loved the church. You think it's a little bit different than the, uh, our culture defines it? You better believe it. God's definition of love is, is in this idea, it's, it's not 50-50, it's 100%, 100%. Two lives joined together. Again, Christ being central, it's covenant, not contractual. Covenant is a powerful word. Covenant means that it's not if you uphold or then I'm out. It's, again, the idea that, that, that while we were yet sinners, Romans tells us that Christ died for us. While we were at our worst, he gave his best. That's the idea of covenant is I'm not looking for something from you in order that you feel I'm not making you deserve my love. I just I love you. I don't withhold love if you do something wrong to me. I forgive you. But it's not based on emotions and feelings. Emotions and feelings are there. We're created in the image of God. He gives us things. Not that we just turn off emotions, that we have emotions, but that's not what drives us. That's not the foundation. Self-sacrificial. The end of myself kind of life. That's why the, 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 this idea of the end of me. Lay my life down. Christ-centered, not me-centered. And if you're here and you're not married, if you aren't ready to love like this, then you're not ready to get married. That should be a good litmus test of marriage if you are not ready to agape love that person. Self-sacrificial love, then you're not ready to be married. And so why is it different there? Because marriage was God's idea. He set it up. 
It's the, it's the first created human institution by God, right? Genesis 2. He creates man, Adam, out of the dust of the ground, breathed life into him, the breath of life, the, 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 the very breath of God breathed into Adam, he creates Adam. He said, it's not good for him to be alone. I'm going to make him a, a helpmate, a, a partner, and there will be a suitable helpmate to him. And so from his side, he creates Eve, and we have the first wedding ceremony. God's blueprint, his design of marriage is in Genesis 2, and it has not drifted from that. That was God. And for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father, and he will be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, one heart, one in emotions, one in spirit. This was God's design, and this is his blueprint, and that has not changed. Two will become one flesh. God's idea, but the purpose and the purpose and intent of marriage was greater than just two people coming together. Right? Again, God's manifold wisdom. He takes a broken man and a broken woman, and He says, "All right, we're going to do life together. You're going to need me to pull this off." It's just like your issues, my issues. They don't go away, but now we're double the issues. Now we need God twice as much as we did before. But the purpose and intent, even in back in there in Genesis 2, God in His wisdom was forward thinking that this was not just about two human beings uniting their life together. And listen to what Paul says. Paul is talking about, you know, Ephesians 5 25, husband, brother, wife, and husband of the church gave himself up there. He's talking about marriage, right? Then he gets to the end of that, 532, says, This is a profound mystery. What, what is this? Marriage. Marriage is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. You see what he's doing there? He said all along that that this this institution created by God, designed by God, was going to point more than just two lives together. That's why marriage ultimately isn't about us. We have a responsibility to steward our marriages, but ultimately it's about something greater. Paul said it it reveals the mystery of Christ. Your marriage represents the gospel. Marriage represents the gospel. So the stakes are higher than more than just two people, and what they can do one to the other is a revelation. It's to reveal. It's to point people to Christ and the church. It's going to reveal God's plan of salvation. It reveals the gospel, Jesus in the church, and that was His point. It's because then. Is this like all those passages that, like in Christian unity, you know, the passages of unity when Paul is teaching the church and you need to be unified, one in heart? That's why Paul said, forgive each other, make allowance for each other's faults. He doesn't say, don't have faults. Make a, you know, you're going to have them, make allowance for them. Forgive each other. They will know that you are Christians by your what? Love. Everybody knows that, right? This is how they will know as much as your unity. Jesus even prayed that they would be one. As you, Father, as you and I are one, let them be one so the world will know that you sent me. The gospel implication is on unity and it's also painted in marriage. And so when people see oh, married people and they love each other, 
It's not based on emotions, that they forgive each other. That they, when they walk in through tough times, that they make allowance for each other. It's not that the world sees, oh, look at those two people. They are so perfect. They don't ever make any mistakes. Our job in marriage is not to create a God that makes you think that I have it all together, right? I don't ever want to do that. I want to freely admit I'm broken and I need Jesus. That my marriage, I love my wife to pieces, but we're broken and need Jesus. She'll have to forgive me. I'll have to forgive her. We have to make allowance for each other. That's just how it's wired. That's how it, but it reveals something. And Paul saying this mystery of Christ in the church that people will see Christ in the church. And so my, my heart is not people that see me and they go, oh, I just, I wish you were perfect like you guys. I'm like, come on over for three days and I will eliminate all that thought from you. But my heart would be to see that, man, I know they're broken and yet they love each other, they forgive each other. They make allowance for each other. They're loving each other even when the other doesn't deserve it. It's revealing Christ and the church. It reveals that Jesus laid down his life. When we, when we forgive, it points to the forgiveness of Christ, right? Again, the implications, yes, I need to forgive from my heart, and I, I can't hold on to unforgiveness for this revealing that Jesus is a forgiver of sin. That he makes allowance for us, that he loves me in my brokenness. And so it reveals Christ. And so with this revelation of marriage, again, this week and next week, I want to give us five keys, and I do two today, to having the greatest marriage possible. Right? There should be way more people in here next week. We can have the greatest marriage possible. If that doesn't sell it enough. But it's going to reveal, that, 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 that reveals Christ in truth. That ultimately, again, it's not about us, it's about Him. Marriage is temporary. Jesus said when we get to heaven, we won't be married. There won't be any need for that human institution because we will be fulfilled in Christ completely. And He does. He gives us gifts. He gives us relational gifts on the earth. Friendship, husband and wife, children, all those relational gifts. But you know what? It takes work, right? Relationships take work. Even amongst friends, even amongst church families. And we're all broken and we need Jesus. We're all dysfunctional. But marriage is temporary, but it has eternal implications. And so my encouragement again is today is, is not to keep on you a bunch of burdens of what you're not doing. But like Paul, it's to keep on encouragement to you that how much you need Jesus. Right? Where you can be reconciled, where you can allow restoration, where you can forgive, where you can repent. And I just heard this guy say this a couple weeks ago because basically the question is, what are you willing to do for your marriage? What are you willing to do? And these keys again, number one, let's do the first one. Jesus first. I know this sounds like duh, but I'm telling you right now, if, 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 if people would ask us, and as we do pre-marriage, marital counseling, Athena and I have done that numerous and numerous occasions, we begin here. 
we've done, you know, we've done pre-marriage, uh, we've done, uh, you know, done weddings, and we've done premarital counseling. And for you know, most of the time, it's two people right from our church, and people that we know well. We've had some that maybe put somebody from our church, and somebody not from our church, and. We, we begin in a place of spirituality that if you want the greatest marriage possible, you put Jesus first, individually and then in your marriage. Jesus must be centered in your own heart, and then he must be centered in the marriage. Again, whether you've been married a little while, a long time, you're thinking about marriage, I'm telling you, these things are <clears throat> important. And this key here is... It's not a suggestion. I'm telling you right now, it's not a suggestion. This is this is a command. Matthew six thirty three. What did Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things. So what are the other things? The blessings that He gives will be added to you. A lot of times we want the blessings without the seeking Him first, and, and, and we will get that out of order. Let's seek God and His righteousness. Seek Jesus and His righteousness. He wants you to have a great man. But Jesus must be your number one priority. Your relationship with your spouse must be second. He is first. The spouse is second. The kids are third. I'm not going to get into that today. But my encouragement is to renew and rekindle your relationship with Jesus if it's, if it's been you know, interfered with, if it's, you feel like you're in a rut and, and, and you know, that you've gotten complacent to... to to ask the question, what has interfered with my, my personal relationship with Christ? When we, again, when we turn on our spouse and we begin, and I'm going to get in a moment about how we fight, when we turn on our spouse, when we make it about them or us and what they're doing or not doing, a lot of times the breakdown is, is that I've not gotten my fulfillment in Christ. And then when they let me down, it's their fault. But when you're fulfilled in Christ, when you are, when you're content in Him, you find your contentment in Him. You're not looking to them to do only those things that Christ can do in you. Because a lot of times, well, we get we put some unreal expectations on ourselves to fulfill something in our heart that Jesus says they were never created to do that. They were never created to meet that need in your heart. But what has happened is you drifted from your relationship with Christ. And then you focus on what your spouse is not doing. When Jesus becomes first in our marriage, it's the, it's the key to having successful wedded bliss. But seek Jesus together. Let's go to the next slide. Seek Jesus together. Seek God individually and together. I'm not, again, this is not a suggestion. This is a must. What keeps you from seeking Christ together? And again, think about those things and begin to reconcile those things. A lot of times, busyness. What keeps you from seeking God together with your spouse? Is it uncomfortable? Yeah, you better believe it. Anything that's worth doing is going to be hard to do, but it's worth it. Deal with that. Fight for it. Now, pray together. There's unity in prayer. And again, this might be one of the things that it's very, very uncomfortable. Here's my my my, my stage wise counsel on that. Get over it. It's going to be uncomfortable at times. That doesn't mean you have to do a two hour prayer meeting with your spouse. That means 
praying for you, taking hands, maybe before you go to bed, first thing in the morning, that you say, we are going to begin, we're going to start a new normal, and we're going to pray together. And again, it, it can be just moments together. God, we give you today. God, thank you for the day that we've had. I pray for you. You know, it's hard to be angry when you're praying for someone. It changes your heart. But pray together. There's unity in prayer. It doesn't have to be eloquent prayers. God wants our honesty. He loves our heart. God, we give you our marriage. God, we give you the season that we're in. Lord, it's hard. You see it. God, I pray for my prosperity, my heart, and help us to love each other. Lord, forgive us for we've been wrong. God wants our honesty. He loves our transparency. He loves our hearts when we're authentic. And we're not just trying to impress him. He's not impressed with our eloquence. He's impressed with our hearts. But pray for each other. Look at, you know, Honey, how can I pray for you? Well, you know, work is this and this. Then take that with the Lord. Just be honest. Talk to Him. Share your burdens with each other. Pray together. And I, I tell you, again, it will create a unity that is hard to break. Read the Word together. What Athena and I do, because, you know, now we have two little ones and our lives are much busier than they were. We both read the one-year Bible. I'm not saying that you have to read the one-year Bible, but I'm, I'm, I'm encouraging individually read the Bible. So what we do is we read the one-year Bible. We don't read it together just because of, but then what we'll do is in the afternoon, the evening, we'll talk about it. Did you read that today? And because, because of maybe something that we're going through, that we, we're, we're walking through, and we're asking the Lord for certain like, prayers, and we say, did you read the psalm today? And I love that. And she'll catch me sometimes, did you read the psalm today? And I'm like, yeah, that was kind of cool. Because we've been asking the Lord, and the Lord will speak something to His Word. And so then when we talk about the Word of God that we've been reading together, but, but, but read the Word together, or read the same stuff, and then talk about the things of God together. What God might be saying. And again, this will be sharpening one another. Guess what? Me and my wife, we disagree at times. Can you believe it? I want to really disagree with God. I know that's hard to believe that we're actually broken people. But we sharpen each other, man. It's sometimes so challenging to like tough out preach and just like, you said this in your message. I'm not sure I agree with that. I'm like, what? You don't fully agree with me? That offends me. And I'm like, here's why I believe it. We'll look in the scripture and I'm like that. And, and you know, and, and we've got to be careful because I'm like, boom, right there. And this will go, boom, right there. And I'm like, oh, no, I didn't see that. Be careful. I'm going to get mad mom. But, but that's the sharpening of one another. Make, and then make worship a top priority. God, come to church together. If I can encourage you, this should not be third on your priority list. Hebrews 10, you hear us say this over and over. It says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And then he says, this, this is a long time ago. He says, like some are in the habit of doing. Nothing's new, right? People went to the lake back then, too. Sorry if that stepped on your toes. 
And don't forsake it. You need one another. Come together, worship together. This should be a high priority, especially as a family. When married couple, when you have kids, and, 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 or if you're a single parent, you get your kids in church. Bring them together, worship together, come together. It brings such unity. And it should not be way down on the priority list. It is, you know, when I grew up, it was we're going to church and everything else revolved around that. And that, but that was that was priority. Yes, we we had fun. We did other stuff, but we would always make sure that we were coming to church together. And I value that now as an adult. But make it a priority. Priority. Prioritize Jesus first. And then number two, let's give an answer. Fight righteously. Permission to fight. Permission to fight, right? You know there's a sinful anger and there is a righteous anger, right? And we can be sinfully angry or we can be righteously angry, but we need to fight righteously. Here's a great marriage passage. I mean, this is a general passage, but James 1. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone to be quick to listen. Quick to listen. Slow to speak. A lot of times we get those just the opposite, right? We're quick to speak and slow to listen. I'm very guilty of that. Boom, 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 boom. And I'm waiting for you to be done. And now I'm going to go back again. Slow to listen. Are you done? Bam! I got my next point. Waiting for your lips to stop. Bam! And I'm like, my, you know, we do that. Anybody else guilty? I'm confessing. Put your hands up, people. Don't be lying in church. Slow to speak and slow to become angry. Why is James saying this? It's because I know what you, what your, the tendency is, and you need to be able to do that. But then, what does he say? Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Now, notice he doesn't say that anger in general is wrong. We get angry. We're emotional beings. We have disagreements. We argue. We fight. We work things out. Again, this is not just marriage. This is relationships. What do you do with that? Do you just quit on each other? That's what our culture says. You know, again, when you basically in this culture is, you've offended me, I'm out. I'm not going to speak to you anymore. We're not going to work this out. We're not going to have a conversation. I'm just out. And this happens in church. This happens in all kinds of spheres of human relationship. In marriage, it's not whether or not you will fight, but how you fight. There's an unrighteous fighting, human anger that's ripping each other apart with the tongue, right? Let's look at the next passage. There's a lot of words there, but you'll get it. It's like that. The tongue also is a fire. James does not mind taking the old spirit of bat and whacking it. The tongue is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and it develops set on fire by hell. James is a passionate man, passionate teacher. But isn't it, isn't it true? All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings for our spouses. 
something made me in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth, I'm praising because of my brothers and sisters, it should not be. This should not be. What is he talking about? That's the general place where we fight unrighteousness is what we say. What we say, how we say it. James also talks about how even in the church where we bite and devour one another. We talk behind people's back and gossip and those things that we bite and devour. And he said, for this is judgment of God's coming. Be very careful not just to look at the world and what the world doing the sinners out there in the world. James is talking to the church. And he says, be very careful. When you bite and devour each other, for this is the judgment of God's coming. Be very careful how you say what you say. Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are the power of the tongue. So the tongue is a powerful speaks of death or life. How we say things. Are we hurtful? Are we cutting? Are we demeaning? Are we harsh? Accusatory. We make blankets bleach. You always do this, but you never do that. We make the argument and we make fighting about being right. I'm here to tell you and confess that you can be right and be wrong all at the same time. I've been in arguments before where I had facts right, but my spirit and my attitude were wrong. And so you can speak the truth and unrighteousness. Again, not listening, but waiting to make your point. Bringing up the past. Those not forgiving or holding on to files that we pull out of the file drawer when the moment is right, when we are having conflict. Remember this back in... Do we not? Do we do it? We do it. How do we say it? What do we say? What, and how do we say it? It's so hugely important. This unrighteous fighting is having unreal expectations for your spouse. Again, I said earlier, stuff only Jesus can do. Reminding them of their deficiency. Or if you're not very verbal, how about, you know, you go, well, I don't really cut them with my tongue. Quiet resentment is another version of that. When we think it, right? You're holding on to anger, anger and hatred in your heart. You say it, but you say it here. Anybody? It's real. You may not say a word, and you might be as guilty as having said it because it's in your heart. And so then you go into another room and you're finding something to do and you are just rehearsing everything and you're listening and you're saying it to them in your mind. It's getting quiet in here. God wants us to have a heart for He wants us to have the relationship that He wants for us. Fighting right for you is about being quick to listen slow to speak, slow to become angry. Righteous anger that isn't zeroed on your spouse. And this helps you begin to fight with each other. Ian and I, when we've done marital talks, we talked about becoming intimate allies, that God wants us to become intimate allies where we're fighting on the same team as opposed to throwing grenades at each other. Because there's a real enemy, there's real warfare, there's a real enemy that hates marriage and he doesn't like any institution that God created and so he's going to fight against it. He'll fight against you. He tries to turn you on each other when he's in the back and he's the real enemy. 
And when we realize that, we begin to be able to fight as intimate allies, and even if we have disagreements or we have arguments or we have righteous fighting, we do it in the right spirit and we understand who the real enemy is. But fighting righteousness is owning up to our own failures, repenting, forgiving from the heart that Jesus forgave you. It's speaking life into your thoughts. Remember what Proverbs says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Is that you see their strengths and you call their strengths out. You see their qualities and you call them out. You see who God has created them to be and you call that out. It's listening to the heart behind what they are saying. Because a lot of a lot of these issues, when we say hurting and biting and devouring things, a lot of it is how we may have been treated as children. Maybe we dealt with things, and that's the only way that we know how to do it is this kind of unrighteous anger. And God wants to heal that so that we can move forward and walk in healing and wholeness in our marriages. Put Jesus first. Fight righteously. Repent. Forgive. And allow God to carry in our Jesus family. Hope that was good. Next week we're going to do more. Bring your friends. Married friends, those who think about marriage, or those who know somebody that's married. So there's your invitation. Um, spouses, if you're here with your spouse, take, take, take each other's hand, hold hands. Maybe you haven't done that in a while, I want you to do it. <laughs>